Oh, I do like the view. Let's get this inside. I'm very jealous. Yep, I've just got back from sunny Brighton. I went for a walk on the beach. And a stroll along the pier. So did you win anything in the arcade? Sadly not. Not even a cuddly toy. I was actually too busy having fun at the British Science Festival. Hello, you are listening to the Ant Hill podcast from The Conversation with me, Will DeFratis. And me, Annabelle Bly. Now, we are dedicating this month's episode to the British Science Festival. It's an annual gathering of scientists and science lovers, and it's held every year in a different city. This year, hosted in Brighton by the University of Sussex and the University of Brighton. Now, I didn't actually go to the festival myself, as I was holding fort here at Conversation Towers, but Annabelle, you you obviously did. Um, So I hope you're going to tell me about all the highlights. And to start off, what was the coolest thing that you saw? I reckon it was the man trying to build a quantum computer, though it was pretty mind-bending. Quantum physics is a very, very, very strange theory. So Einstein called it spooky and actually didn't believe it. That's Winfried Hensinger, a quantum physicist at the University of Sussex, who is working on building the world's first quantum computer. To understand that, we need to first understand some basics about quantum physics. It's very mad. It means that you can be at two different places at the same time. So you could be sitting here and you could be at home having breakfast. Now, in quantum physics, that is a reality. And in fact, people have done experiments where they have observed exactly that, but not with people, but with individual atoms. So an atom can be at two different places at the same time. Right. So how can that be applied to computers? I'm going to let Winfried explain that one. Now, physicists studied that for 50 50 years where blew their mind, basically, and and just couldn't understand it. Eventually, they decided, hey, okay, let's just accept it and ask the question, is it a possibility we can actually tame these quantum effects to build an entirely new technology, a machine, which could solve certain problems no other computer could ever solve? Think of it this way. A a classical computer, a normal conventional computer, uh, stores information as bits. So their bits are zeros and ones. So any kind of information you put in your computer, it's just a string of zeros and ones. It's kind of a language. Now, take two bits, for example. A classical computer, I say, has two bits. And imagine, think of a really bad memory stick. Think of a memory stick which has only really uh, uh, two bits. So, for example, I can encode one number in there, zero, one, for example. A quantum computer uses quantum bits. And instead of just encoding zero, one, I can encode zero, 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 one, one, zero, and one, one, all simultaneously. Now, that doesn't sound very impressive if it's just two. But imagine how many different combinations you can have, say, if you have 10 or 100 quantum bits. And what a quantum computer does, basically, it processes all this information simultaneously. A conventional computer can be very fast, but it does it subsequently. A quantum computer, because of this mad idea that things can be 0 and 1 at the same time, a bit can be 0 and 1 at the same time, it can do all these combinations simultaneously. And that's what gives it this tremendous power. For a long time, it was considered impossible, actually, to tame quantum effects. But thanks to a new technology developed by Winfried and his colleagues, they are working on the first prototype. Previously, people felt they needed pairs of laser beams to make the computations within the quantum computer 
if you have a billion qubits, you'd need a billion pairs of laser beams to do that. Imagine that. That's the engineering would be just ridiculously complicated. So we were able to to come up with a new method where we replace all of these laser beams with voltage supplied to a microchip. And uh, around a year ago, we were able to do the experiment to show that that is actually possible. And so this this was really really exciting time. Because now we can we can really think about building the machine. And a few months after that, um, we published what is the first construction plan to actually build a large scale machine. And, and so if, if you're interested, you can actually go on the internet, you can download this and you can actually read it and, and you can actually see how we're gonna go about building this large scale device. So there you have it, a quantum computer in the works. If scientists can build them, quantum computers have the power to solve incredibly complex problems from breaking encryptions to unlocking the secrets of DNA to creating next level artificial intelligence systems. That's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty out there. Someone else who got a lot of attention at the festival is Colin Smith, a genomics expert at the University of Brighton. Colin has become the first person to donate his entire genome to the Personal Genome Project UK. That's a research project led by academics and involving citizen scientists. In it, he has waived any right to anonymity. Our science editor, Miriam Frankel, sat down for a short chat with Colin. She started out by asking him why he's decided to do this. Well, if everybody did it and um, shared information on our personal traits, exposure to environmental toxins, um, our health records, that would be an incredible resource for people to draw relationships between variants in our DNA and health outcomes, health risk. So if millions and millions of people donated their data openly, what are some of the things we could crack? What are some of the mysteries we could solve? Well, it's it's impossible to predict what we'll find from this. I mean, one thing that's certain is we'll get a clearer picture of the contribution of particular genes to diseases. From a practical point of view, the uh, analysis of a genome predicts how efficiently you can metabolize drugs and and whether a particular drug would work for you. So what is the difference between it being anonymous and being open? What are some of the things we couldn't learn if all the data was anonymous? Well, first of all, at the moment, the idea that you can keep genomic data anonymous is probably not true. So a number of groups have demonstrated that you can take anonymized data from research papers and just from the information in the supplementary information and and the paper, they could uh, deduce who the individuals were. And in fact, one group sent a list of all the names and addresses of the anonymized people in this paper to the editor of one of the top journals and correctly identified all the individuals. But couldn't you strip that information out somehow to make it the anonymization better rather than just giving up on the idea of having anonymized data? We're not talking just about the genome. We're talking about a lot of other data as well. And the Personal Genome Project is currently the only project where you can actually link a lot of personal information um, to the genome sequence a lot of detailed information about their health, behavior, all kinds of things. And so there isn't any other resource that allows you to do that. So you can't really 
do the kinds of analysis that you'd like to do with anonymized data because you don't have that rich source of other information linked to the genome sequence. And so what did you find out in your report? Oh, a number of interesting things. Um, the, the way Personal Genome Project works is very interesting. They generate a fully automated report, so it takes every variant. So what do I mean by variant? Each of us has 46 chromosomes, 23 from the mother, 23 from the father. And between them, they contain six, about 6 billion building blocks. It's like 6 billion letters. My genome, 3.5 million of those 6 billion are different from the reference. So there's one reference genome which everyone compares to. One of the interesting um, findings was I have a couple of mutations in an enzyme that's important for breaking down particular drugs. And if I was given that drug, it could be potentially fatal to me because my body can't break it down. So that's good to know. Yeah. Um, the other thing is I've got particular variants in a protein that transports drugs into cells, which make it very inefficient. So I'm seven times more resistant to many commonly used drugs, including antidepressants. So it means the drugs won't work uh, on me. And um, so immediately that would suggest other treatments. Um, so it's a much more efficient way of... Um, prescribing medicine if you've got this information to hand. I mean, it sounds great, but like for me, I think I'm like a hypochondriac and I'd be really freak out knowing that I was maybe at risk of certain diseases or I just find the idea really scary. If you're a hypochondriac, it's definitely not for you having mm -hmm. a genome done. I experienced it myself when I saw I was at risk of something, a particular condition, I started to develop symptoms. I was having some twinges before, mm -hmm. but they became much more magnified after having studied my report, because there were multiple variants that were linked to a particular quite rare condition. And it concerned me to the extent that I did go and seek a test. And I did have a test that was negative, And those symptoms faded away. So, you know, you can't underestimate the power of the mind. That, that's the downside. Personal genomics and donating your genome sequence is certainly not for everybody. Um, I mean, people tend to fall into two camps. You either really want to know or you really want to stick your head in the sand. Everybody has variants which are linked to diseases, horrible diseases. And it's a kind of slight risk, you know, elevated risk of something. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean you're going to develop it. You might be two times more likely to develop ovarian cancer than somebody else. Or you might be two times more likely to develop a liver disease. And some people start developing symptoms. But what about an insurance company finding out that you're more likely to develop it, even if it means that you're not? Um, currently, there's a moratorium on using genomic information in health insurance. There's um, an agreement called GINA, Genetic Information Non-Disclosure Agreement. So they can't use genetic information. But that is a risk. And, you know, there, there are risks with anything. And, and if you're going to sign up to donate your genome, have your genome done and make it publicly available, um, you have to pass an exam, uh, an online exam, to show that you understand what genetics is, what risk means, what the risks are, and that you may be discriminated against. I don't know whether you've seen that movie Gattaca. It's where 
people are discriminated on the basis of their yeah. genes. And, um, and, and in fact, this gene, as I mentioned, was known as the anti-Gattaca um, agreement to prevent this kind of discrimination against people who are at higher risk of something. So what does it mean if you have a, a twin, for instance, or has it like an identical DNA or, or just your children? Do you have to take this into account when you make your genome available to everyone? Well, if you're going to donate your genome to the public, it's something clearly you should discuss with your family. Whatever is in my genome doesn't mean it's going to affect my daughter because you know, only half of her genes come from me and the other half come from her mother. And if I have got some genes which carry a, a health risk, it's highly unlikely she would get that plus the same bad gene from the mother because, you know, we have two copies of every gene and normally the healthy gene is always dominates over the, the, the mutant gene. So uh, a knowledge of my genome is unlikely to have negative impact on, on my, my daughter. One issue that people have to be aware of when they have their genome done is they may discover that their biological parents are not who they thought they were. And that happens in up to 10% of the cases. What? It's uh, normally paternal, just because it's... Yeah, because you know who the mother is. It's more difficult to mix up the mother, but uh, yeah, up to 10%. Wow. And uh, so you have to be aware that you might be in for a little shock. You didn't find that? No, I'm fine. (laughs) Um, But the point is, you won't know that unless um, your parents have been tested as well. Ah, okay. But so in a future where this becomes more and more common. Yeah, there, there are. there's a very simple genetic test. Have you heard of 23andMe? Yes. That's testing you for the 800,000 most common variants in humans. And, and a lot of families get that done and they have it as a Christmas present. So if your mother and father do do it and you do it, then it would come to light just from 23andMe. Miriam Frankel there, speaking to Colin Smith from the University of Brighton. So, Will, would you donate your genome to research? In theory, yes. I have no objection to it. But um, I don't like the idea it just becomes a sort of huge database for some big evil corporation that uh, has literally my most personal data. I hear you. The Science Festival was also a forum for debate for some other controversial issues – Take, for instance, body farms. Sorry, what what is a body farm? So a body farm is a research facility where scientists study the decomposition of human bodies. Uh, but I'm going to let one of the experts that we spoke to at the Science Festival explain this a little better. I'm Dr Anna Williams. I'm a forensic anthropologist from the University of Huddersfield. So Anna led an event at the festival that outlined the case for and against the need for a body farm in the UK. The proper name for a body farm is a human taphonomy facility. Um, They are outdoor laboratories where donated human cadavers are used by forensic scientists for decomposition research, for understanding how different bodies decompose in different conditions for a variety of forensic reasons um, to estimate post-mortem interval, to find bodies uh, in different environments, to help identify them and to help um, identify the perpetrator maybe. 
There are several body farms around the world, including in the US, Australia and the Netherlands. They've played an important role in helping forensic scientists learn a lot more about how the human body decomposes than the animals that they otherwise do research on. Uh, the problem is that the data that's produced by the facilities in America and Australia uh, aren't, the data is not directly applicable to forensic cases in the UK because there are so many differences there climatic differences, environmental differences, soil differences, scavengers, insects, plants are different. Um, so I think we need a human taphonomy facility in the UK so that we can understand how bodies decompose in UK environments. This isn't Anna's specialism, but she told us that one of the big areas that forensic scientists are looking into at the moment is what different bacteria can tell them about decomposing bodies. So their identity, but also the body's movements before death. Bacteria from the perpetrator, bacteria from the person's house, uh, you know, different uh, communities, different populations might give you clues to where the person's been, who's who's been touching them, that kind of thing. Um, like any organism, really, they have their niche. So there are uh, bacteria who prefer um, to colonise a fresh body, those who prefer to colonise a bloated body or a skeletonized body. Um, so you might be able to tell post-mortem interval from the communities of bacteria on the body, that kind of thing. But it's, it's, a, it's a very, so far, unexplored area and the one that needs a lot more attention. That was Anna Williams, a forensic anthropologist at the University of Huddersfield. Now, if the idea of a body farm makes you feel anxious, you might think about doing some mindfulness exercises to calm you down. The practice of mindfulness and meditation has been around for millennia, but it's become increasingly popular in recent years, and particularly as mental health issues are on the rise. I spoke to a researcher at the festival who's looking into this very area. Her main area of research is public mental health and the possible benefits of meditation exercises. The important thing to note is that so far the jury is still out on just how effective mindfulness is. So there's a lot we still don't understand about mindfulness when it comes to prescribing exercises for people. Julieta says that there are some circumstances where people do not benefit from one common form of meditation.
Although people have meditated for centuries, modern academic study into the issue only began in recent decades. That was Cambridge University's Julieta Galante. So when I think festival, I think music and performance. Um, was there any of that down in Brighton? Actually, well, there was. There was an Algorave nightclub, which is where electronic dance music is made by algorithms, which are created live by musicians. Sounds fun. Yep. I mean, sadly, I didn't make it to the algorithm rave, but we did listen to some music that was a bit more historical and quirky, a mix of Gilbert and Sullivan light opera and maths. It was called the Mathematicado. Here's a snippet. Our science editor, Stephen Harris, sat down with the academics behind the performance. Amy Chambers from Newcastle University and Andrew Fiss and Laura Kassenfiss from Michigan Technological University in the US. So you're all here to run an event at the British Science Festival called the Mathematicado. What is <laughs> or what was the Mathematicado? It's a parody of the Mikado about math. And what's the Mikado for those who don't know? It's probably Gilbert and Sullivan's best known and, and most popular and most performed um, operetta. Um, and it was based on sort of Japanese society, um, which was a Victorian interest at the time. Um, and it's a, a very basic love story uh, with revenge and intrigue and humorous songs. In 2005, when I was a senior at Vassar College, I went into a used bookstore to buy myself a graduation present um, of a, a book of Vassar songs. And I found a book called The Mathematicado. And I didn't know what it was. So I bought it because I thought it sounded cool. Um, and I was working on Gilbert and Sullivan at the time. And years later, my um, husband, who also had gone to Vassar with me, uh, was working on a phenomenon of textbook burning rituals in American colleges and universities, mainly math textbooks. 
And we realized that the Mathematicato was part of this larger textbook burning ritual, although no textbooks were actually harmed in the making of the Mathematicato. Because, in fact, what this is, is it's a, a document that's a record of an 1886 performance that was written and performed by women at what administrators argued was the first major women's university in the United States. So in 1886, these women responded to this broader phenomenon of American university students who, usually groups of men, burned their books in highly ritualized manners. Instead, what developed at Vassar College is something that was much more oriented around plays. And so specifically, this is a, a parody of Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado, when the Mikado was still in its initial run at the Savoy Theatre. And one of the things that we find so interesting about it is that ostensibly it seems like it's about trigonometry and math and but there are in fact very few math jokes <laughs> um and so uh what it it seems to be instead is on a certain level sort of these women arguing that they could do university level math but more generally that they could just be university students without qualification so also that they didn't necessarily have to be considered female university students, but just university students. So can you tell me a bit more about the the, the parody itself? Can you give us some examples of the, the kind of jokes they're making? I want to talk about one of my favorite jokes. I really love the way that the parody works. One of the songs I think is so interesting is one of the ones that Andy is going to be singing in our presentation, which is a parody of Tit Willow. In the Mikado, Tit Willow is um, sung by Coco to seduce Cadishaw, who he doesn't really want to marry, but he needs to for reasons of plot. He's talking about this bird who's singing, oh, willow, tit willow, tit willow, and the bird throws himself into the water, and, you know, and then in the end, um, uh, you know, I feel just as sure as I'm sure that my name isn't willow, tit willow, tit willow. Twas blighted affection that made him exclaim, Oh, willow, tit willow, tit willow, And if you remain callous and obdurate, I shall perish as he did, And you will know why, Though I probably shall not exclaim as I die, Oh, willow, tit willow, tit willow. So instead, in the Mathematicato, some of the substitutions are amazing. So, like, instead of blighted affection, it's mathematics. Getting and, straight to the point there. Yeah. And, and it said, you know, and if you remain callous and obdurate, and if I should take calculus. Now I feel just as sure as I'm sure that I about this is the way that it's using humor instead of fire. I'm, I'm just really interested in the way that the way that this is backlit by these literal textbook burning rituals. And so instead of actually setting fire to the book, there's almost this like, oh gosh, like alchemical process in which they sort of fuse popular culture 
with their um, sort of subject matter. And, and it's the parody that's really making this happen. Because you have to remember that the Mikado at the time is popular culture. It's it's sort of what the kids are listening to. <laughs> it's not sort of um, something that's restricted to an older generation. You think of Gilbert and Sullivan now, and, and when I say I sing Gilbert and Sullivan as a hobby, um, often I'm the um, youngest person by a good sort of couple of decades. And, and sort of the idea and the interpretation in British culture of, of Gilbert and Sullivan is very different to, to what it was when it was performed originally. Um, so this was sort of a for want of a better phrase, a cool text to make fun of and parody because everyone would recognise it and know it and it was still sort of it was still in theatres quite literally. So today it's like somebody doing a YouTube video about maths to a Jay Z song or something. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this idea of, of of sort of of parodying something that you sort of recognise and that um yeah. I think Hamilton would probably be the best analogue. And of course Hamilton uh, refers to Gilbert and Sullivan. From what you found out about this, was it just sort of trying to make a funny point or did people have a, a specific goal in terms of trying to recruit more women to the college or promote, you know, the cause of women's education more generally? Yes, I absolutely think that um, there is a serious point to try to say for the women to articulate their own anxieties about what it meant to be a female college student at the time, but also by turning it into a joke they're sort of robbing, you know, they're gaining power. And then part of what we looked at was the reception of this play. It was reviewed by some um, student newspapers at male colleges and universities. It's a little bit unclear what the, the students who wrote and performed this play were intending, but what did in fact happen was that there was acceptance of the idea that they were uh, university students on par with uh, male university students because of these sorts of reviews, um, because it was reviewed at places like especially Harvard University. The student newspaper was very positive about this particular play and in fact said, oh, look, these women are doing the same things that we do at the end of our last required math class and they're making jokes and they're funny. Maybe they're university students too. <laughs> so what happened in the period after this? At what point did American education become kind of, uh, m well, more open to, to both genders? And, and when did the big institutions start taking in women as well as men? It didn't really happen with places like Harvard and Yale until the 1960s and 70s. So this is really, it's about 80 years beforehand. So it's, it's really sort of the forefront of that sort of argument. The other thing I thought when I saw this was that it felt not out of place almost with quite a lot of modern science communication activities. What are the kind of comparisons that you've been able to make? And is there anything that perhaps, you know, modern people trying to promote the cause of women in science can learn? I think what makes the Mathematicado interesting is because it's using humour and it's using performance to engage with this so it's celebrating and that's one of the exciting things is it is a pleasurable celebratory event people who wanted to join in and and be involved um, rather than pointing out all the problems with being a woman in a field that hasn't necessarily accepted women previously they instead go down the positive celebratory enthusiastic route which I think makes it a really interesting uh, document and that Contemporary parallels is this idea of celebrating women of science, celebrating um, women in maths, engineering, uh, science, 
rather than simply pointing out the problems of being a woman in a field where you're underrepresented. And I think that's an interesting um, part of this discussion that we're having about women in STEM at the present moment. And I also wanted to say sort of it's not necessary to have the full funding or full institutional support to do something like that. There might be very sort of low budget things that are not necessarily seen as entirely uh, supportive ways of sort of expressing that sense of celebration that can be incredibly powerful as well. That was our science editor, Stephen Harris, there, talking to Andrew Fiss, Laura Cassenfiss, and Amy Chambers. Now, I remember, Amy, she was in a previous episode we did on the future, talking about why we find science fiction that's set in uh, in the near future really frightening. Go check it out, everyone, if you've not heard the episode. It's the anthill number 10 on the future. Yep, and we bumped into another familiar face and friend of the conversation while we were down in Brighton as well. Hello, I'm Professor Mark Lorch and I'm a Professor of Science Communication and Public Engagement at the University of Hull. Mark wanted to tell everyone about a citizen science project called Hit or Myth that he's running and which you could try out too. So this is a project that's in conjunction with the Royal Society of Chemistry and what we're looking at are life hacks that people may use for various things and uh, what we're doing is we're asking people to conduct simple experiments, report their results and see whether any of these life hacks working. They've already proven that stainless steel soap helps remove the smell from your hands if you've been peeling garlic and the experiment they're crowdsourcing at the moment is about copper coins and whether putting 1p and 2p coins in water does actually help cut flowers live longer. Okay, so the hypothesis is that the antimicrobial properties of copper kills off bacteria, which may then infect the cut flowers and make them wilt quicker. So some people suggest you should drop a couple of coins in the water and your flowers live longer. Mm-hmm. It's feasible. Whether it actually works or not is, is, another, is another matter. If you want to give the experiment a try, here's what you have to do. Buy some flowers, um, put one set of the flowers in a jar with, uh, with just water, another set in with a couple of copper coins, observe them over about 10 days, report back the results after a day, three, five, seven, ten days, and, um, and we'll see whether the copper coins uh, actually do have an effect or not, or whether it is a complete myth. To find out more or to log your results, go to the special website they've set up. It's hit or myth. .hull.ac.uk and there's a handy conversation article about it too which we'll link to in the show notes for this episode and that's all from us and the British Science Festival for this episode of The Anthill Thanks to all the academics who spoke to Annabelle and co tune in again next month when we'll be doing an episode dedicated to the tumultuous events of the Russian Revolution 100 years ago the Anthill is brought to you by The Conversation, where you can find lots more interesting comment and analysis, including articles by some of the academics featured in this podcast at theconversation.com. Do sign up to our free daily newsletter. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends about us and give us a review on iTunes or whichever podcatcher you're using at the moment. And a final big thanks as ever to the journalism department here at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and my co-host Annabelle Bly. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.